rain. You know, in Eretz Yisrael, uh, it uh, doesn't rain for so much of the year. But literally, whenever it rains, it's always considered to be a great bracha. So one has to be very grateful. Especially this season, we didn't have, it wasn't exactly a famine, it wasn't a drought, but we didn't have as much rain as we usually had. So Hesh Baruch was giving it to us uh, towards the end of the rainy season. So uh, is this the last uh, week before a break, Pesach break? Or you have a, no, yes. one more talk. Okay. So anyway, I was asked to talk a little bit about, um, it's connected to Kashrus, it's the Kashrus of Pesach. Talk a little bit about uh, the issue of keeping Pesach, particularly when you're not in a Pesach Fika home, etc., and what are the various restrictions you have and what are the various leniencies that you have. And, you know, it's important to, uh, to know this. Uh, and it's doable. You know, it's not optimal, obviously. If a person were to, able to be able to choose their environment, they would want to choose a totally kosher home and a totally Pesach home. You know, that's not always the situation. And uh, let me point out, too, that uh, even if you have the option, this may be a little controversial, like not to be with your parents for Pesach, that may not be the best option, really, because in many, many ways, besides the gratitude that you owe your parents, uh, if you could be an example of Judaism and Yiddishkeit and mitzvot, uh, without lecturing, just by the way you live your life, that could be a very good influence. So you simply say, I want to put myself, again, think about, uh, think of yourself as, this is your shlichus, right? Some people have a shlichus to go to uh, Italy or to go to Cambodia. Your shlichus is to go to your parents' home. That you be a shlich there too. And uh, try to bring Torah and Kedusha uh, to that environment to whatever degree is possible. So even if you had the perfect choice of going to somebody's house for all of the holiday, again, I'm not telling you yes or no, but, but it's not so pushish, it's not so simple that you should opt for the more religious environment and leave your parents bereft of your, uh, you know, your uh, visit with them. Okay, so let's go over some basic things about Pesach. And I'm sure you've probably heard this in a million other teachers, so forgive me for, for repeating. Uh, Besides the fact that Pesach is a Yom Tif, but okay, then we're not going to go over Yom Tif laws generally. Uh, we have special rules regarding chametz and matzah. Uh, and the basic rule is this. Uh, what is chametz? Chametz is any one of the five grains. Now, the five grains are wheat, barley, spelt, rye, and oats. Any one of the five grains that comes in contact with water in an unbaked state, unbaked state, for 18 minutes or more is considered to have fermented to a certain degree and once it has fermented, it has crossed the line into chametz. Right? So any flour that's in contact with water is chametz, uh, 18 minutes. Uh, matzah is the same thing that hasn't done that, meaning in order for there to be matzah, it also has to be the five grains. Right? You can't make rice matzah. It wouldn't be, well, you could eat it on Pesach, maybe, if you're a Sephardi, but it wouldn't be kosher for the mitzvah of masa. Okay, so the most important uh, Isser prohibition of Pesach is, of course, the prohibition of chametz. Now, the prohibition of chametz has three subcategories, Doraisa, three Torah subcategories, and one rabbinic subcategory. Uh, number one, chametz cannot be eaten on Pesach, that's obvious. Number two, chametz you cannot derive benefit from. So, for example, you cannot feed your pet chametz because you're getting benefit. 
<coughs> you cannot sell chametz on Pesach, on Pesach, even to a guy, even though you're not, the guy is not sinning. So that's called Isr Hanah, Isr Achila, Isr Hanah. But the third one is the most difficult. <coughs> that is, it is also to own or possess chametz on Pesach. Now this is very, very unique. The, the idea of not owning something. I mean, you're allowed to own chazer, right? You're allowed to own meat and milk. If, you know, we can't do anything with it, but you can own it. But chametz is not only an isher of achila and an isher of hanah, it is also an isher of owning. And this is derived from the Pasuk that says, Bal ubal You shall not see it and you should not have it found. Now, again, though, you understand that if I took that Pasuk literally, you're not allowed to see chametz. If I took that literally, that means you would sin every time you walk by a store with bread in the window. And certainly you would sin if your parents have bread in the house. So please note that the way the sages interpret this verse, the prohibition is not seeing the chametz. The prohibition is not looking at it. The prohibition is owning it. Now this already is very, very, very important. That means if I am in an office where some people, Jewish or not Jewish, unfortunately, bring in bread and they're eating the bread six inches from me, and I see every bite they're taking, I am not transgressing any halacha because I haven't eaten the chametz, I haven't gotten benefit from the chametz, and I don't own the chametz. It's only us or if you own the chametz. If you don't own the chametz, there's no avera there. Yeah? So you said we can't benefit from the chametz like feeding an animal. Yeah. Um, what would you feed your animal then? Because isn't it a mitzvah to feed your animal before you feed yourself? Well, you have to feed your animals kosher or pesach food. So, for example, you can feed your animals, depending on what they eat, uh, meat. Uh, you can feed your animals rice. I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, millets, buckwheat, right? Th- things that are not the five grains. They have to be careful. So you have to look. So if any of you have a pet, it's very, very important <coughs> that you do have to examine the pet food. Uh, as it were, uh, because uh, if, 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 if it is chametz stick of pet food, you know, you could, again, you can feed an animal non-kosher food. That, that's not the problem. Like dog, dog food often has horse meat in it because it's cheaper. So there's nothing wrong with feeding my dog horse meat. Horse meat is trafe, but I'm allowed to get benefit from it as long as I don't need it. But if it's Pesach and it's Chametz, that you're not allowed to feed your dog. So you're going to have to uh, be very careful to examine. And there are lists online. Uh, the Star K of Baltimore in particular, where I'm from. Um, in fact, the head of the Star K was my, my high school rabbi, Moshe Heineman and Shalita. Uh, they have lists of pet food that's okay. And they have different types of things. Now, another thing is this. So this is Chametz. Right? So the three prohibitions of Chametz are eating, Getting benefit and ownership. Ownership. Okay. Now, there's a... Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. And I mentioned there was a fourth rabbinic one. The fourth rabbinic one is this. That any chametz that was owned by a Jew during Pesach, 
if a Jewish person owned chametz during Pesach, that chametz after Pesach is permanently prohibited to everybody. This is a punishment that since the Jew violated the prohibition of owning chametz, so that particular chametz is forbidden forever. Now, where that's going to be relevant, and again, you're going to have to talk to your local rabbis about the local cities, is that let's imagine you have a store, a supermarket, and the supermarket is owned by a Jew. But the Jew is a non-religious Jew. So the Jew did not sell his chametz to a goy before Pesach. The Jew owned his chametz, and he continued to sell the chametz during Pesach. After Pesach, you want to go and into the store and buy chametz items. Non-chametz you could buy for sure, even during Pesach. Cholomoed you could buy you know, non-chametz items. But you want to buy chametz items. You cannot buy the chametz that he owned during Pesach because that falls within the rabbinic category of chametz sha'avar olav ha-Pesach which is forbidden forever. So you cannot buy chametz until an amount of time has elapsed where you can assume that the stock has turned over. In other words, that the chametz you're buying is not the chametz that he had on the shelves during Pesach. You understand the idea? So let's imagine, depends on the item, let's imagine bread. Bread, let us say, I'm making up numbers, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Let's imagine bread has a typical turnover of one week. That means to say that um, (coughs) bread is either sold or disposed of within one week of its being put on the shelf. So that means that you have to wait a week after Pesach before you buy any bread there because... If you buy within a week, maybe you're getting bread that he got the last day of Pesach or something. But once you wait a week, you can assume that all bread on the shelf is bread that the store got after Pesach, and therefore it's mutter. Now, this will be different for bread. It'll be different for cookies. It'll be different for pasta. Every, a pasta might be on the shelf for a long time. So because of this, because it's so difficult, to kind of make an individual determination, we go with a rule of thumb. And the rule of thumb basically says, don't buy chametz from a Jewish-owned store until Lag Ba'omer. Uh, I will admit to you that that is simply picking a day out of a, a date out of a hat, but Lag Ba'omer is pretty much, it's a few weeks after Pesach. It's late enough that you can assume that all the chametz on the shelves came to the store after Pesach. Okay, and that's, but again, this is something that your local rabbis will, will keep you posted. And first, first of all, there's a, there's a whole other question. What is the definition of a Jewish store? Now remember, this is a problem only if a Jewish store owns chametz. If a non-Jewish store owns chametz, you can buy the chametz immediately after Pesach. Right? You understand that? Because the Isser is only if a Jewish store owns chametz. So the question then becomes, well, as far as I know, 
Stores don't have a religion. A Jewish store. The store is Jewish. Right? What does it mean for a store to be Jewish? So Rabbi Moshe Feinstein explains that generally speaking, uh, even small businesses are, are incorporated. They're corporations, technically. And corporations have stocks that are owned by shareholders. I don't mean necessarily public, you know, it's not about, but, you know, the family owns the shares. So Moshe Feinstein says, if a majority of the shares, 51%, are owned by Jews, or even if it's not a majority, but they own enough of a minority that they control, so for example, they're a big enough block that they can make the decisions because the other ones don't really care. That might be even 25%. That halachically is a Jewish store. But minority Jewish ownership does not make it a Jewish store. Now again, you, you have no way of researching this. Uh, I'm just telling you what, what the local rabbinate does in every city. They investigate what stores are uh, Jewish stores, what stores are not Jewish stores, and they'll give you a Lagba Omer date, usually, usually, maybe sometimes a little earlier. And this is the principle of Chametz Sha'avar Olav HaPesach. Okay, so what do we have so far? We have three Da'oraisa prohibitions and one Jarabanan. The Da'oraisa is don't eat, don't get benefit, don't own during Pesach. The rabbinic one is that if the Chametz was owned by a Jewish entity over Pesach, that Chametz can never be eaten or got bet or benefit for that reason. Yeah. Um, selling Chametz, is that also a prohibition during Pesach? Is that like well, yes, yes. Well, the reason is simple. The reason is it's not really a separate thing. You're not allowed to get benefit. Okay. So when you sell Chametz, during, during Pesach we're talking about, uh, you're getting benefit. In fact, even if you give it away as a gift, this is interesting, you have to be careful there, Giving a gift is called a benefit. Why is it called a benefit? Because when I give you a gift, you think of me as such a nice person, etc. <coughs> so having a guy think nicely of you because you gave them a gift of cake, that is considered getting benefit from Clement. So <coughs> you might be able to leave it out anonymously and nobody knows, and that's not called getting benefit. <coughs> but if you consciously give the gift to somebody, that's called benefit. Yeah? What if it's a non-Jewish owned store, but like the clerk is Jewish, or like person... Say again, if it's what? If it was a non-Jewish store, but the person like you were like paying wasn't Jewish. I'm sorry, the customer that you... The, no, so like... It's, oh, the guy that you're paying in the store. And like someone... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, empl- the identity of the employee is not a difference. It doesn't make a difference. The cashier could be Jewish. Uh, that's fine. As long as the store is not considered to be Jewishly owned, uh, there is no issue of buying chametz right after Pesach. Yeah. Um, if you're volunteering at a non-Jewish food bank, can you be giving people chametz food? Okay, so you certainly could not give Jewish people chametz food. Okay, but let's put that aside because you're causing them to sin. Uh, giving non-Jewish... So I think that would be a problem, actually. The, the reason... I mean, you're actually serving them or just... What, what are you doing in the food bank? Yeah, you'd be like serving them. Yeah, so if you're serving them, I think there is a problem that they're going to have feel gratitude to you for that, and that would be called getting benefit from the chametz in that way. It would be like giving a giving a gift. Okay, so now 
uh, let's examine some other halachos that emerge from these basic halachos. And that is, since I'm, first of all, one thing I have to mention, that the laws of chametz are a little unique because they don't start with Pesach, they actually start Erev Pesach. Meaning the laws of chametz kick in earlier than the holiday itself. The holiday of Pesach does not start until nightfall. But the restrictions of chametz start in the day before the nightfall. And in particular, the prohibition against eating chametz, eating chametz, starts after four hours of the day. Now, let, let me first give you a simple example, then I'll illustrate this concept generally. Let's imagine a perfect day, which happens only twice a year, the equinox. Sunrise is 6 a.m. and sunset is 6 p.m. It's an it's exact 12-hour day. It's only twice a year you have that. 12-hour day, 12-hour night. You have the spring equinox, which is around Pesach time, and you have the, uh, the uh, autumn equinox. So in a perfect day that begins at 6 and ends at 6, so four hours of the day are 10 o'clock. That means you're allowed to eat chametz until 10 a.m. Once 10 a.m. of Erev Pesach comes, you're not allowed to eat chametz. Okay, that's what would be in a theoretically perfect day. However, the way halacha computes time and this is a very important rule in many, many areas, is we don't define an hour by 60 minutes. We define an hour by one-twelfth of the daylight hours. So that would mean the following. Again, I, don't, I just don't have the, the calendar in front of me, but you'll see that on the calendar. I just want to explain how it works. Let's imagine sunrise is 5.30 in the morning. Sunrise. And let's imagine sunset by pacing, it's going to be 6 o'clock. So you actually have a day that is 12 and a half hours rather than 12 hours. Yep. Now, take 12 and a half hours and convert it to minutes. How do you do that? Just multiply that number by 60. Right? 12.5 times 60. That's, is that 7,500? Is that, that correct? I'm sorry. No, no. Um, I should know better than to do math when I don't feel well, but okay. <laughs> yeah. It's 750. 750. So that means the day contains 750 minutes. The halachic definition of an hour is one-twelfth of that period of time. So 750 divided by 12 is around 62 and a half minutes. Okay, this is relatively minor. So that actually means a halachic hour is not 60 minutes. It's 62 and a half minutes. So four of those hours from sunrise, see, that's why it's not going to simply be six to ten. It's four halachic hours from sunrise. A halachic hour is one-twelfth of the number of minutes from sunrise to sunset. 
That's a halachic hour. Multiply that by four, and that will tell you when you're not allowed, to, when you, uh, the time at which you have to stop eating chametz. But it gets complicated. Even when you must stop eating chametz, you are still allowed to get benefit from it, feeding it to your animal or selling it to a non-Jew for an extra hour. Now the extra hour well, is not a 60-minute hour, but again, it's a halachic hour. This is before the day before Pesach. This is before Pesach. Before Pesach. That's why you'll find, right? You'll often find uh, that you'll always be given two times. You'll say, you must stop eating chametz by an earlier time and you must sell or destroy your chametz by a later time. And that's simply the difference between four hours and five hours. Okay? Now, once the five hours have passed, at that point, you're not allowed to eat chametz, of course. You're not allowed to derive benefit. You're not allowed to even sell chametz. If you made a mistake and you're stuck with chametz, the only thing you can do is destroy it at that point. But you shouldn't have it at all. You shouldn't have it all. If you have it, then you have to destroy it. You cannot uh, sell it to a guy at that particular point. Okay. So chametz is unique because the prohibitions of chametz are not only on Pesach, but they also apply to Erev Pesach. Okay. So, in order to guarantee that none of us own chametz on Pesach, we actually do a lot of different things. Number one, we try to eat up our chametz before Pesach. Right? That's one thing you can do. Number two, we sell our chametz to a guy, through a rabbi usually. Because even if I keep the chametz in my house, if I don't own it, it's not my chametz. And we also try to physically destroy some chametz before the end of the fifth hour on Erev Pesach. Okay, that's called biur chametz. You try to eradicate physically the chametz. So we do three things. We do biur, which is physical destruction. We do machira, which is sale to a guy. And then we can do things like throwing it into the garbage or whatever it is. But all of these things have to be done no later than the end of five hours of Erev Pesach from the start of sunrise. Okay. Right, so, and the night before, that's when we check for chametz. If there's any leftover chametz, right? And we, so we, the, the chametz that we find, we burn the next, uh, the next day. Now, a few things. This is the basic structure of chametz. Now, chametz only involves the five grains. Wheat, barley, spelt, rye, and oats. Anything that, that can become chametz is also kosher for matzah. So it's important to know that although most matzah is wheat matzah, oat matzah can be kosher for Pesach. And that may help people with gluten intolerance or celiac disease. You can even get oat shmur matzah. Okay. Now, 
In addition to chametz, we have another category of food that you don't eat on Pesach. That is called kidneyos. Kidneyos literally means legumes. And this refers to things like corn, rice, beans, millet, buckwheat, that would be kasha in Yiddish, and the like. Now, kidneyos is a huge difference between Ashkenazi and Sephardim. Ashkenazim, and, and Hasidim are Ashkenazim, for this purpose at least, do not eat kidneyos at all <coughs> during Pesach. <coughs> Sephardim, many Sephardim, do eat kidneyos. So even the most religious Sephardi may have rice or corn on Pesach. And Ashkenazi cannot have rice or corn on Pesach. This is called kidneyos. Why is there a gezerah of kidneyos? <coughs> this dates really post the Gemara, after the Gemara. But it was based on the idea that because these are types of grains that people would grind up into flour and make bread-like foods, in order to avoid confusion, the custom became not to eat them. But... Because kidneyos is not really chametz, this is very important, even Ashkenazim have certain leniencies. Kidneyos are usher to eat, but you are allowed to get benefit from it and to own. Why is that important? Pet food. I said before, you cannot give your pet food that has chametz in it. But you can give your pet food that has kidneyos in it. That's why I had mentioned, if you have a bird, <coughs> and in the bird seeds there's millet. Millet is kidneyos. So you could feed a bird millet on Pesach. You don't have to worry about that. Uh, the same thing is true that kidneyos is permitted for a baby who needs it as part of their diet. And that's very important because a lot of infant formula has kidneyos. Oh, thank you. Right? So remember, kidneyos, even for an Ashkenazi, is not the same as chametz. Kidneyos is asr ba'achila mutar bahana'a, as opposed to chametz that is also asr bahana'a. And kidneyos is Ashkenazi Sfardi. So the very big question people have is, <coughs> what if there is um, an intermarriage, not really intermarriage, Ashkenazi and Sephardi. So generally speaking, the wife should follow the customs of her husband in either direction. But what if the wife is Sephardi and she marries an Ashkenazi and they're going to spend Pesach with her parents? Now her parents are Sephardi. And her parents are going to make rice things. Is the couple allowed to eat rice in the home of the Kala's parents? The answer is no. She cannot eat kidneyos. But if non-kidneyos food is prepared in the kidneyos pots and pans, 
it's not considered treif. Meaning, unlike food that's prepared in a chametz pot that might be treif, we don't prohibit non-kitneos that's prepared in a kitneos pot. So what's commonly done is the Sephardic uh, family will make non-kitneos food, but they'll make it in their regular uh, pots and pans and, and the like. Okay? So that's kitneos. Right? So we have chametz, we have kitneos. Now the third thing, which is particularly important for Chabad, is the issue of gebraks. Or in Hebrew, it's called shuruya. How do you spell gebraks? Well, gebraks is Yiddish, so uh, the English spelling would be G-E-B-R-O-K-T-S. Gebraks. Now, gebraks is a a little complicated in terms of language, because when a person says, I keep gebraks, or I do gebraks, you know, what do they mean? Gebraks just means soaked matzah. When you say, I keep gebraks, that means you eat gebraks or you don't eat gebraks. That's a little ambiguous. Um, some people mean when they say, I keep gebraks, they mean I don't eat it. And some, some people mean they do eat it. It reminds me a little bit of, in my, old, in my yeshiva in there, Israel in Baltimore, they had two different, just an analogy, they had two different cutleries, uh, two different sets of cutlery for meat and milk. One was labeled in English, M and the other was D, meat and dairy, and the other, um, the other was labeled fleshik and milchik, F and M. So there's an F and M, and an M and D. So when you found in the dormitory a fork or a knife that was an M, you didn't know if it stood for meat and was fleshik, or it stood for milk and it was dairy. So the designation is important. You've got to be consistent in your designations. So the same thing we say gebraks, you have to be clear what you mean. But gebraks is a chumrah that is widely, widely spread among Hasidim in particular. But it was actually created by the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe was Machadesh, this particular chumrah. And gebraks basically means that matzah meal or matzah product cannot be eaten if it has come in contact with liquid. Now let me explain why this was not a problem and why the author Rebbe said it was a problem. Technically, it's really not a problem <coughs> because once something is baked, it cannot become chametz. The rule that if water mixes with flour, it becomes chametz after 18 minutes, is only if it's unbaked. Once something is baked, it is not capable of becoming chametz by contact with liquid. So, most people say, once matzah is baked, once you have matzah meal, you can soak it in liquid and you can boil it in soup and you can make kinedlech, matzah balls, all sorts of things. Because it's not going to become chametz, because it's already baked. That would be the minog of those who are not machmir on gebraks. But the Alter Rebbe, because of the sanctity of Pesach, was choshesh. He was afraid of the possibility that even when you have a baked matzah, there may be 
parts of the matzah that were not totally baked and are still in the status of flour. So if they come in contact with liquid, they potentially <coughs> could become chametz. And thus, the shita of the Alter Rebbe was that we don't allow even baked matzah or matzah meal to come in contact with liquid. And that's called the chumrah of not eating gebruks, or in Hebrew, not eating sheruya, not eating soaked matzah. Now, as a practical matter, the primary hardship is that if you follow this chumrah, you cannot have matzah balls on Pesach, because matzah ball take matzah meal, mix it with egg or whatever it is, and boil it in soup or water. That would be a violation of Shuriya. If you don't have the chumrah of Gabraks, you're allowed to do that. Okay? So whether you follow or not, that's up, up to you and your, your, your teachers, but I'm just, just informing you about it. Now, what is nichlau in the din of Gabraks? Itself is many machloksa. Some people say it's only clear liquid, like soup or water, but you could mix masa with eggs, or you could mix it with, um, you could put butter, margarine on it, because that's not gebruch. Gebruch is only clear liquid. Other people are actually super machmer. They're so machmer, they will not allow peanut butter or chocolate spread or butter or margarine to touch their matzah meal because they consider that to be liquidy enough that it could make it chametz. So even within sharuya, there are different gradations where some are stricter and some are less strict. So again, you follow whatever the minhagim you have. Now, Sharuya has one unusual, one unusual leniency that only applies to the diaspora, and that is, in Chutz Aretz we keep Pesach for eight days. There's an eighth day of Pesach. Sharuya is mutter on the eighth day of Pesach. This is the only Chametz restriction that is mutter on the eighth day. And uh, Chassidim will serve, that's a big deal, the Baal Shem Tov's meal, the last, the last meal of the eighth day is a very, very significant Sauda, not only among Chabad, among all Chassidim. And not, you know, I assume it's, it's not significant because they're serving Kenelech, but they serve Kenelech on the eighth day. But I want to be very, be very careful you don't make a mistake because some people do make this mistake. They, they remember in America they serve Kenelech on the Baal Shem Tov's meal of the eighth day. So they'll serve Kenedlach on the Baal Shem Tov's meal here on the seventh day. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. Big mistake. It is only a heter for the eighth day. It is not a heter on the seventh day. The seventh day, if you have the Chumrah of Shuriah, you have to keep it 100%. Okay. All right, so we talked about Chamez. Uh, we talked about Kitneos. We talked about uh, shiruya, gebraks. Now let me talk about one other food item, and that is the issue of egg matzah. There is a product out there that's called egg matzah. Now egg matzah comes in many, many different uh, things. There is just egg matzah, which is really oil and egg yolk. There is chocolate-covered matzah, honey matzah, different things like that.
Now, the thing about egg matzah is that it's softer, it's easy to chew. So, here, now again, if, if you're a chassid who keeps shruya, you'd have a problem with egg matzah anyway because it might be gebrux. Okay, but, but putting that aside, there's a huge machlokas, Ashkenazi and Sephardim on that. This is not connected to kidneys. There's the kidneys machlokas, and there's the egg matzah machlokas. Let me explain what the issue is. <coughs> it is a davar pashut that you cannot use egg matzah at the Seder. That, that's for sure. There is no machlokas whatsoever. Even if the only thing a guy could chew is egg matzah, he cannot use it at the Seder. Instead, he should take matzah meal in spoons and drink water. And the reason why you can't use egg matzah at the Seder is the following. The matzah of the Seder is described as lechem oni, the bread of affliction, the bread of poverty, the bread of persecution. Egg matzah is called matzah ashira, rich bread. It's like luxurious. Poor bread is flour water. Rich bread is having these other ingredients added. So it is a davar pashut that matzah ashira is not kosher for the Seder. That's for sure. But what about eating it the rest of Pesach? So Svardim are very simple. Svardim say, we don't use it at the Seder, but we can eat it the rest of Pesach. It's not chametz. Ashkenazim, however, have a chumrah that we treat egg matzah as potentially chametz and we don't eat it well, we, we stop eating it uh, the fourth hour of, of uh, Erev Pesach, after four hours, and all the way to that after Pesach. Right? So we treat matzah ashira as potentially chametz. <coughs> However, it's a funny type of chametz. Once again, it's similar to kitneos. We don't eat it, but we're allowed to own it. And children, the elderly, or the ill are allowed to eat it. Not, not for the Seder, but they could eat it if they can't eat regular matzah. So we don't treat it mamash like chametz. If we treated it mamash like chametz, we would never have such a leniency. But it's like a quasi type of chametz, usher to eat, but we do allow uh, ownership, and we do allow giving it to children, and we do allow... Uh, even to giving it to elderly people who have difficulty chewing otherwise. But again, not for the Seder. It cannot be used for the Seder. The Seder requires lechem only. Okay, so these are uh, what you might call the four food groups that are very relevant for Pesach. We have chametz, we have kitneos, we have shiruya, we have matzah ashira. So kitneos and matzah ashira are Ashkenazim Sfardin. Shuruya are Hasidim versus non Hasidim. And um, what was the other one? Was it Chamet, Kitneos, Shuruya, Matsashira? Yeah, and Matsashira also, Matsashira is also Ashkenazim and Spartan, right? So two of these machlokes are Ashkenazim and Spartan, and uh, one machlokes is Hasidim and Mustachim, yeah. What about an elderly person who can't like crunch on Matsashira? Yeah, so, so what you do is, if a person is elderly, let's say a person doesn't have teeth or a person mm-hmm. can't chew, so what he could do is, 
you actually take matzah meal. Take matzah meal, and he takes uh, a number of spoonfuls of the matzah meal, and he washes it down with water. And he's yotze, the mitzvah of matzah, with the matzah meal. It doesn't have to be a whole matzah if he can't chew it. Okay? That's better than matzah ashira. Matzah ashira, the matzah is mixed with, you know, fancy ingredients. So it's not good. But if it's plain matzah meal in water, he could, he could eat his matzah that, uh, that way. Okay? Any, any questions, other questions about uh, the basic uh, groups of Pesach and the basic machlokas? Yeah. Um, there is, what's it called? Um, like the gluten-free matzah. Yeah. Um, so if someone's not necessarily gluten-free, they just like enjoy that in comparison yeah. to like whatever, like the regular matzah you use at the Seder. Yeah. But not yeah. on Seder, like the Seder nights, like throughout the rest of the week, is that problematic? Well, the rest of the week, 100%, it's not problematic. Again, as long as it's not matzah shira, as long as you don't have any ingredients besides flour and water. Mm-hmm. Now, the gluten-free matzah only has flour and water. Yeah. But it takes out the gluten. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be okay. That's going to be okay. That's going to be perfectly okay. The problem is only matzah, matzah shira. By the way, uh, Sephardim have another tradition. Uh, they actually have soft matzah. Uh, meaning to say, if you've ever seen uh, the Sephardic matzah, instead of being brittle, like a cracker, pretzel like mm-hmm. consistency, it actually looks like a laffa. Mm-hmm. But it's matzah, it did, not, it did not ferment for 18 minutes. So it's called soft matzah, and it's kosher le Pesach. So an interesting question is can an Ashkenazi eat Sephardic soft matzah? For either the seder or the not, or not during the seder, so it's a machlokas. Some say, since it is our tradition, I say, I mean Ashkenazi tradition, that matzah is hard and brittle. So anything that's not hard and brittle, we cannot treat as matzah. Others say, what's your problem? I mean, uh, Svardim keep chametz just as strictly as we do. They have a kidney as hetcher, but you know they they don't they don't they don't allow it to become chametz. So as long as the supervision that it didn't become chametz is good supervision, there's no problem, and an Ashkenazi would be allowed to eat the Sephardic soft matzah. seems to me logically that it should be allowed. I don't see any problem. And it seems in the time of Chazal, they did have soft matzah, and this seems to be the meaning of the famous sandwich of Hillel. Right? We have the Hillel sandwich, uh, in which uh, the Torah says you should eat the Korban Pesach with matzah and with maror, so we do it separately initially, right? We eat the matzah, then we eat the mora, Pesach we don't have today, unfortunately. But Hillel read it very literally. He would wrap the matzah and the mora and the Pesach together. So we make this, and again, we don't have the Pesach today, so we don't do that, but we, we put the romaine lettuce with a little haroses between two pieces of matzah. Very, very awkward, right? I really have but if you think about it in terms of soft matzah, Hillel invented the shawarma. <laughs> it's exactly it. Actually, it's very, del- very uh, you know, delicious. Uh, it's a delicacy. He took like a lapa, and he took some roasted lamb, which was the carbon Pesach, and he put some lettuce in it, and he wrapped it as a sandwich mamish. Right? If it's soft matzah, it's mamish. Uh, it's like a shawarma. That's all it was. 
So it seems in the time of Chazal, that's what they actually ate. So that, that's why there wouldn't be much of a, of a problem there. But again, you have to be sure it's under reliable supervision because the last thing in the world you want, God forbid, is for it to be chametz. If it's chametz, then obviously uh, it's a very, very big, very, very serious, serious avera. Okay, so now uh, let's look at some of the problems that a person might face if they're in a non-Pesach Dika home. So problem number one uh, is that you're in a home in which there's a lot of chametz all over the place. Technically speaking, that is actually not your problem. You don't own that chametz. And if you don't own that chametz, you have no responsibility to get rid of it. As disturbing as it is to be surrounded by chametz. Now again, if you can convince your parents to get rid of it, or to sell it, that's perfectly fine. That's a great thing. By all means, you should try to do that. But if you can't, then don't worry about it in that sense. It's not your problem. Now, what you do have to be concerned about, number one, is any chametz that you own. So any chametz that you own, you must either dispose of, throw away, or sell... Theoretically, you could sell it without a rabbi, but I wouldn't advise you because there are technicalities in how you sell it. I mean, people sometimes want to just sell it to their next-door neighbor. I, I, I don't encourage that because there are ways in halacha that ownership is transferred. So just because I tell my neighbor, take my chametz, that may not be good enough. So I would advise do it through a rabbi. But theoretically, you don't need a rabbi. But practically, I think you do. So you've got to be sure you sell your chametz. Now, what about searching the house for chametz the night before. Like, what are you supposed to do if the whole house is, is full of chametz? What are you searching for? I mean, you know the chametz is here. So the short answer is, you're searching the particular room or suite, depending how luxurious your accommodations, that is your private area. So an example would be, that uh, if you have a bedroom, your own bedroom, in your parents' house. Now, if your parents are keeping Pesach, then of course the whole house should be searched for chametz, <coughs> like everybody else. <coughs> but if your parents are not keeping Pesach, <coughs> there's no real point in searching the house. What are you searching for? I mean, you know the chametz is there. But what you do is you are mechuyiv to search your private bedroom, the desk, the closet, uh, and, and the like. Now, in searching chametz, as you know, there are two customs. <coughs> Some have a very widespread custom that in case they may not find any chametz, they actually put out chametz. I'm sure you've done this before. They put out 10 pieces of bread, and they look for the 10 pieces, and uh, those pieces will be burnt. Uh, now, if you do that, if you do that, although you're not mechayiv to do that, but if you do that, you've got to be really, 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 really careful of two things. Number one, wrap up the bread very well because you don't want it to have other crumbs that will continue to spread out. <coughs> and number two, be sure you remember 
where they are. Because sometimes a person puts out 10 pieces of bread, only finds nine of them, and can't remember where the 10th one is. Now, ideally, the way it should work is this. It's not enough just to put out the bread and then retrieve the bread. You're really supposed to be looking for chametz. You don't just pick up the 10 pieces. So what, what, what really should work is that one person should know where the bread is, but the one that's doing the search doesn't know. That's what uh, my wife and I do every year. She puts out the bread, and she doesn't tell me where, where it is, and I gotta look through everything to find the bread. Right, that way, I'm, look, I'm not just looking for the bread, I'm looking for chametz generally. Uh, because if you simply know where you put the bread and you just look for the bread, you're not really searching for chametz. Do you like close your eyes and put like hot and cold and stuff? Sometimes, sometimes. If, if, you know, if it's getting if it's getting late, I ask for a hint. But but usually, but usually speaking, right, <laughs> right. Have you found chametz that's not related to the bread that was hidden? Usually not, because most people clean the houses before Pesach. Uh, but in the event that you didn't, uh, you know, that's a good good time. So Bidikas Chametz is not necessarily a chiv on the whole house. If your family is not keeping Pesach, <coughs> you are not mechayiv to search through the house, but you are mechayiv to search through your private room. And by the way, that also includes your clothes, because sometimes people do have chametz in their pockets. Like you might have candy, you might have a cookie in your pocket or something. So it is proper to go through pockets of jackets, uh, whatever it is, and see if there's any chametz uh, there. Uh, go through drawers. Of course, if you're a mother with young children, bedikas uh, chametz can be very difficult because there be Cheerios all over the, all over the place. But I'm assuming, as a visitor in your parents' home, if you're only searching one room, it wouldn't be necessarily such a big deal, uh, and the like. So that's one thing to keep in mind. You are not in trouble because there's chametz in the rest of your parents' houses. Let me just warn you, however, that uh, even things like toiletries potentially may have chametz uh, issues based on alcohol and the like. So uh, even making your bedroom or your bathroom Pesach uh, chametz-free is not always so easy. You really have to look at every single item uh, in the medicine cabinet or the like and then come up with a list that kind of tells you what has grain alcohol, what does not have grain alcohol, uh, and the like. Uh, and that is part of your bedika for that room. But you're really limited only for the areas that you are using, not the areas that are public areas of the house. Yeah. Um, does percentage of the amount that is alcohol matter? Like if it's, it's a mixture that's 0.1% alcohol. <coughs> uh, okay. <coughs> so this is a very, very interesting rule. When we were discussing when we were discussing meat and milk, and even kosher and treif, so we discussed at great length the rule of shishin, that if the prohibited substance is less than one sixtieth of the whole mixture, it gets nullified. So if a drop of milk falls into a big pot of soup, unintentionally, we don't mean you're allowed to deliberately add the milk, but if accidentally a drop of milk fell into a meat soup, you're allowed to eat the meat soup because the milk is batel in shishin, 60. 
And that's not only true for meat and milk or milk and meat. It's even true for kosher and treif. If a little piece of pig juice fell into a meat soup, you could eat the soup accidentally. What's interesting is that one of the big exceptions to that rule is the rule of chametz on Pesach. Chametz on Pesach is not nullified even in 60, even in 1,000, even in 10,000. So if any part of it is chametz, then the whole thing is forbidden, even though you have many times more than the chametz. However, this is not the end of it, <coughs> this only applies to a mixture that occurred on Pesach. If the mixture occurred before Pesach, it is nullified in 60. So my short answer to you is that if the grain alcohol is less than one part in 60 and it was purchased before Pesach, it would be nullified and you'd be allowed to use it. Okay? Yeah. Um, can I ask a question about Dika's comments? Yeah. If the person leaves the place where she like where I usually say, like week or two before Pesach, do I need do I need to make Dika's comments in that way? Okay, excellent, excellent question. Uh, I'm going right, I'm going away for Pesach. I'm going to my parents, or going some anywhere. Uh, what are my obligations regarding the place that I'm leaving? <coughs> so the halacha is that if you are leaving within 30 days of Pesach, you are halachically obligated to search your dira the night before you go for chametz without a bracha. Okay, so you are obligated. So let's let's take here, right? I mean, my you notes. You'll probably be in many of you might be in this very situation. <coughs> you are halakhically obligated to do a bedikas chametz on your dormitory room without without a bracha, because the bracha is only when you're doing it in the right time. <coughs> However, there is a way you can get out of it. That is. If when you authorize the rabbi to sell chametz, you also authorize the rabbi to sell, so to speak, your rights to your dormitory room. So it's not going to be your dormitory room, then that would exempt you from having to do bedika. So you have one of two choices. Can you still live in there? Huh? Can you still live in there if it's been sold? Well, well the sale doesn't, yeah, yes, because the sale does not take effect till Erev Pesach morning. Before like, the fifth hour. But like on Pesach, can you sleep? Like no, oh. no that, that, that's correct. You wouldn't be able to do that. In other words, otherwise, a person could never, you know, I can get out of Badika all the time. I can, sell, I can sell my house and live in it. That, that doesn't work. Okay. Uh, but you can sell your dorm room or sell your house uh, and not have to do any Badika as long as it, you will not be in there for Pesach. Do you sell your garage and then like take the car out or no? Like, if the car is in the garage and you sell your garage... Yes, yeah, so that's an interesting question. Can I sell my garage and keep my car in the garage? Some would say no. Others would say that you can stipulate, the rabbi can stipulate in the document that even though I'm selling the garage to the guy, but the guy is giving me permission to keep my car 
in the garage. Yeah. Okay. Does everyone understand? But in terms of the, the question of dira, that's very important. You must check your dira the night before you leave, unless you have stated to the rabbi who's selling your chametz that you want your dira to be sold with the chametz to take effect the morning of erev Pesach. Yeah. Um. To jump back to the um, um, discussion regarding toiletries, cleaning products, yeah, is there a list online that also like tells you like what the ingredients are? Like you mentioned before, the Starke mentions with dog food. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the good news is this: uh, the CRC, which is Chicago Rabbinical Council, again a very also a very respected uh, body. They take the position that most, most toiletries and cosmetics do not have to be kosher le Pesach. Because even if they contain grain alcohol, it's not edible by a dog. And there is a principle that chametz that a dog wouldn't eat is not called chametz. So they actually tell you there's not going to be too much of a problem with a lot of things. But some things, there will be a problem, and they will indicate where there's a problem. But they have, like, a list on uh, They do have lists on okay. them, yeah, yeah. So I would check the CRC uh, for those lists. Uh, you know the famous story, but there's a story about chametz uh, not edible by a dog, in which uh, one of the questions is, does toothpaste have to be kosher with Pesach? Because toothpaste, some toothpaste has a grain alcohol in it. Some. Flavorings. So, uh, so one rabbi said... Uh, toothpaste does not have to be kosher le Pesach because if you put toothpaste in a bowl, a dog would never eat it. And so therefore it's mutter, it's not chametz. So a person did this experiment with his own dog uh, and his dog ate it. So he went to the rabbi and said, my dog ate it. So the rabbi said, who are you going to believe, your dog or me? <laughs> the answer is, if it's a question of a dog will eat it, I'll believe the dog. The dog, the dog is more a more reliable evidence if a dog eats it than the rabbi. So I'm not giving you a particular psak on these things, but but understand the issue. There there is a concept in chametz that even if first of all, uh, artificial alcohol is not chametz at all, and a lot of alcohol is artificial. But even when there's grain alcohol and there's potentially a chametz problem it's often not going to be edible by a dog, and that would make it much, right? So you have to have two, two things come together to be a chametzik a problem. One is that the alcohol be grain alcohol, and number two, it be potentially edible. And uh, that's why you'll find different opinions about how to apply those. Do they sell kosher Pesach? Oh, yeah. They sell kosher Pesach everything. They sell kosher Pesach water. I mean, they sell things that don't have to be kosher Pesach. <laughs> uh, because people pay extra money, extra money for it, uh, and, and the like. Okay, all right. So that's kind of uh, some of the general uh, the general ideas here. Um, again, the bracha of bedikas chametz is only on the bedikah you make the night before erev Pesach. Any bedikah earlier than that, such as your dira here, is done without a a bracha. Uh, however, let me point out that. One thing you'll notice in the ceremony of B'dikas Chametz, we search the Chametz the night before, search for the Chametz the night before, but right after we search it, when we finish the search, 
we make a declaration renouncing our ownership. Any chames that I did not find, I hereby declare, is ownerless, hefker, like the dust of the earth. That way, what is the purpose of that declaration? That in the event you miss something, you don't own it. And if you don't own it, it's not a problem. Okay? That's called beetle. Nullification of chametz that you're not aware of. Now, you don't nullify the chametz you are aware of for a very simple reason. The chametz you're aware of, the chametz that you found, you want to burn the next day and fulfill the mitzvah of burning chametz. But if it's not your chametz, you don't get that mitzvah. So you bedafka don't nullify ownership on the chametz that you found, you only nullify ownership on the chametz you didn't find. Now, the next morning, before the fifth hour, before the end of five hours, you can do it as early as you want, but what you do then is you burn the chametz that you found, and then you make a second declaration of renouncing ownership which includes not only the chametz you don't know of, but even the chametz I know of, I'm hereby renouncing it. But you say that only after you burnt the chametz. Is the declaration of bracha, that's what you're saying? Huh? The declaration is the bracha? No, it's not a bracha. No, there, there are three things here. Before you do bedika, the night before, you make a bracha. That's a regular bracha, asher kiddushanah b'mitzvosav, that God commanded us, on a mitzvah called Bior Chametz, destroying Chametz. That's a bracha. You then do Bedika with a candle or a flashlight. There are two different minhagim there. After Bedika, it's not a bracha. You make a declaration of renunciation of ownership. That's called Beetle. You can do it in English. The next morning, you burn the Chametz that you found or other Chametz that you want to burn. And then you make a second declaration of renunciation of ownership. But the difference is, the first declaration, the night before, only included the chametz you're not aware of. The second declaration, which is your final declaration, after you burnt the chametz, is even the chametz you're aware of, you're hereby declaring is owner, ownerless. Except for the chametz that you sold by the guy, that, that you're not. <coughs> now... Here is the interesting thing. Even if you did a bedika here in Israel a week before, you don't do the second declaration. In other words, if you found chametz here, you don't burn it the next morning. You burn it Erev Pesach. Now you'll burn it with, other, with whatever other chametz you'll find in your local bedika where you are. Okay, so the second bedika, I'm sorry, the second, yeah, the second bedika will have its own burning, and you will include your chametz from the first dira in that second burning, and that's when you'll have the nullification. Okay, so you're going to have to hold on to that chametz for a, for a week, or however long, however long it is. Okay, okay any, uh, anything else? Uh, 
So right now I'm trying to think. Uh, again, I, we covered a lot of different uh, different areas. If anyone had any any specific question that I yeah. Um, this actually might be a, I don't know if it's silly, but it's something basically like with a water filter on a refrigerator. Yeah. Um, in terms of like, like I don't know if there's like a way to caution it specifically, but is that something that you should be wary of? Now, is this a water filter with hot water or just cold water? Just cold water. Yeah, so if it's just cold water, uh, it didn't become trafe. I mean, just like a refrigerator. I mean, do I have to catch a refrigerator for Pesach? Uh, the short answer is I don't. Uh, because even though I put it... Now, I, I should clean the refrigerator yeah. to be sure there are no crumbs and stuff like that. But I don't have to kosher the refrigerator because, like our general rule, without heat, it didn't absorb any, any chametz. Right. So a water filter that's just cold water, uh, and water is not chametz, of course, didn't become chametz to begin with. Uh, now, if you're talking about an urn, you're talking about where hot water passes through, that may be a more complicated, okay. complicated thing. Even then, if it's a plain water urn that was only for water, it didn't become chametz thing. Mm-hmm. But you never know because I mean, I'm giving you an example. Let's say, let's say you took a, a tradition soup, mm-hmm. a noodle soup, and you put it under a hot spigot. Mm-hmm. Now you understand that potentially you now have a chametz sticker urn because what happens is. The hot uh, liquid goes into noodles, which is chametz, and the noodles bring up steam, yeah. and that steam is considered to contain, so to speak, the taste of the noodles, and that steam is absorbed by the spigot or by the urn, so you now have an urn that has absorbed chametz, so you wouldn't be allowed to use it on Pesach without koshering the urn, right? So that's why urns do need to be koshered, because of those problems. Uh, but if somebody tells me they've only used the urn, you know, you never know, but if somebody really, really says they've only used the urn for, for uh, tea or coffee, then they know They wouldn't have to kasher it. They, they, theoretically, they could use it straight for Pesach. Okay. If it didn't become chametz, then it doesn't have to be kasher. Okay. Right? That's the common sense rule. Now, people are strict. People want to, you know, always want to be careful. But, you know, there may be some unnecessary... I mean, like, well, I don't want to discourage that either. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some activity might be more than you need to do okay. to comply. Okay? Um, and then also, yeah. in terms of, like, a stovetop, like a gas stove, yeah. like, how is that... Like, how are you supposed to, like, push that to take care of that? Yeah, yeah. So, so once again, uh, because uh, chametz is like treif, yeah. so anything that absorbed chametz, you cannot use without kashering it, burning it out. So uh, the way you kosher a stove top, let's talk about the old-fashioned stove top because there are modern things. Let's say a gas stove top or an electric uh, uh, burner uh, is you simply thoroughly clean it, number one, thoroughly clean it with easy off and the like, and then turn the burner on to its highest temperature for a half an hour, and you have now koshered the burners. Okay, that koshers the burners and that actually koshers the grates. But you still have a problem with the surface of the oven between the burners. Mm-hmm. So you should cover the surface of the oven with aluminum foil mm-hmm. uh, as well as cover the, uh, what do they call it? The things that collects the grease. Uh, they have the little, like a little pan under the you have a gas burner, there's a little pan that collects it. So basically you should, you know, the burners are fine, but you should cover the grate plates 
and the surfaces with aluminum foil. And uh, the way you kosher an oven is the same thing. So first of all, if you have a self-cleaning oven, in Israel it's not that common, but in the United States uh, a lot of people have self-cleaning. Self-cleaning is automatic kosher. <coughs> you simply turn on the self-cleaning cycle, <coughs> you have kosher. You don't even have to clean the oven ahead of time. The self-cleaning does it. If you don't have a self-cleaning oven, meaning the oven doesn't get as hot as a self-cleaning oven, so what you have to do is you do have to manually clean the oven with Easy Off with a caustic oven removal. And after you clean it with a caustic oven removal, then turn it on at its highest temperature for an hour or so. And then you've captured your oven that way. And do you have to wait like a 24-hour waiting period? Uh, yes. Well, oh, okay. so it depends. If it's a self-cleaning oven, you do not. A self-cleaning oven is equivalent to a blowtorch, which has no waiting period at all. If, however, you are conjuring based on highest temperature, uh, you should wait 24 hours after the last chametz use. And then does the same go for, like, you, like with a gas stove? Do you have to wait the 24 hours? Uh, yes, 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 yes. And uh, <coughs> Basically, um, this type of conjuring does require a 24-hour wait. By 24 hours, I mean 24 hours from the last time you used chametz okay. in the stove, okay? Um, does the pet food need to have a hacksher, virtual face-off, or is reading the ingredients enough? Reading the ingredients is enough. It doesn't have to have a hacksher. I, I, I don't know if you can get kosher le pesach pet food. I'm not sure. Although I'd, I'd be surprised if somebody's not trying to make money off it. Um, uh, but you can, you can rely on the ingredients itself. Um, and I have a second question. Yes. Um, what, um, what is the chumrah of healing produce? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is an, an interesting thing. There, there, are, there are kind of certain chumras that certain people have, which are not really halachas, but there are minhagim, and if families have these customs, they should follow them. Uh, some require that all fruits and vegetables be peeled, even like an apple, uh, be peeled. Uh, this goes back to a time in Europe when a lot of fruit was coated in flour in order to keep it fresh or something like that. So as a result, you didn't want to eat the fruit with the peel because there would be flour on it, which would be chametz stick. Now today, we don't put flour on fruit, so it's not really anything to be worried about, but these things became customs. Uh, for example, some places have a minag, they don't eat garlic on, uh, on uh, Pesach. And once again, it goes back to the fact that garlic had been commonly dried with flour and starch. So some of these are connected to food processing mechanisms that are not even done today, but they became, they became customs of Pesach. Some people have a minna that any piece of cutlery that falls to the floor, they will not use on Pesach. Because who knows what's on the floor? Right? It might be a cheerio or whatever it would be. Uh, some people have a custom... They do not eat outside of their house, no matter how religious uh, the person who invites them is, because we don't uh, go to other people on Pesach, because everybody has, the, has their own chumras and the like. So these are not halachas per se, but you know, Pesach has many, many minhagim over the thousands of years, so different families do have different practices. Yes? In terms of looking for chumras, if you're not eating in your home for like, so on it, 
Would you have to check comments in the place that's supposed to be moved for the Seder? Check comments where in there? Uh, like if you're not at your home for the Satan Act, the entire part yeah. of Pesach, yeah. would you have to check the home that they're, that's hosting you as well as your own home, or just your own? Well, unless you have your own separate room uh, in the home that you're invited to, you have no obligation to check the home in which you're having a Seder. Now next week, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the Seder itself, exactly the different halachas uh, to be aware of. I mean, obviously, if you're having the Seder in a home where they don't keep uh, the laws of Pesach, you have to be extremely careful about what you eat at the house. That's for sure. But you have no obligation to check the house out for chametz. That's not your, your chiv in any way. Okay, have a good week and take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.